This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com forward slash B-E. You're listening to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. Welcome into today's conversation. This is going to be a good one. My guest is Principal Baruti Kafele, author of the Equity and Social Justice Education 50, which is a recent Excellence in Equity Award winner from the American Consortium for Equity and Education. The Equity and Social Justice Education 50 Critical Questions for Improving Opportunities and Outcomes for Black Students is available from ASCD. Principal Kafele, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. So let's jump right into this part of it. It's the word equity, right? And it's the journey. You write about this in the book of how several years ago was the first time you really started hearing the word used a lot with respect specifically to K-12 education. The concepts around equity have always been around, but the terminology and putting it front and center and saying this is a focal point, it came in. We all sort of rallied around it. It went from an inspiration to, in my observation, over the next handful of years to almost becoming a cliche in some ways because every company was throwing it out there and not necessarily thinking, they just knew they had to say it and not necessarily thinking that much about it to now where we're in an environment where where there's certain people who want to treat it as a bad word. And so now, and now it's become, it's gone from, we don't hear it that much to controversial. So I really want to hear from you about your perspective on the term what equity means in your perspective and why this is critical that we put this front and center and we don't shy away from it. Yeah, it's such an interesting phenomenon, this little word called equity. As you said, a few years ago, when it really came on the horizon, where it became a part of the education lexicon, and I would say approximately 2012-ish, 13-ish, 14-ish, here comes this word, And as I listened to it, as I listened to other presenters and began to read what people were saying, then I said, okay, that's what I've been talking about for my entire education life. But now there's a word for it. And so I'm in the right place, in the right space. But then I tend to talk about equity in the context of pre-George Floyd 
and post George Floyd. And pre-George Floyd, I think for the most part, folks were all in on this word equity. Because for me, when I think about it, equity is just the latest solution to closing the achievement gap. Whether we're talking about racial, ethnic achievement gap, socioeconomic, language, special needs, whatever it is, there's been a succession of different solutions, different strategies. Here's what we're going to try now. So here's the latest thing. And then equity became that. And so here we are. So then post George Floyd and the politics of America, I don't want to say they shifted, but I want to say that things were uncovered. So now we started to see things or at least acknowledge things that weren't being acknowledged before as it relates to race. So now with that, simultaneous with that in the education world, this word equity developed a different connotation and it became the boogeyman, as I say, the four letter word, the political word, and folks became afraid of it. So it's interesting in terms of the timing of my book, The Equity and Social Justice Education 50, because when it came out, it, it sold like hotcakes. But as America began to just go through the shift that it went through, starting with the summer of 2020, I noticed a dramatic decrease in sales. So there's a lot of places now that won't touch it. Whereas other places will, it just depends on what part of the country we're talking about. But I know I'm kind of giving a very lengthy answer, but let me just say this in terms of what it is. Equity doesn't have a universal definition, right? right? It's like you think about growth mindset. Anything growth mindset, most of us, if not all of us, would go directly to Carol Dweck's work. Carol Dweck's books, her research. And so therefore we were talking a very universal language as it related to growth mindset. With equity, on the other hand, you got a zillion different people talking about it and you got a, another zillion pe different people writing about it and presenting about it and so forth. But there's not that universal definition to say, this is what equity is. So therefore you got some, all these interpretations and quite frankly, some of those interpretations have my head spinning, but there's all these different interpretations of what it is. What I did, I said, let me simplify this. Let me make it as basic, as simple as I possibly can. I said, equity is simply meeting young people meeting children or meeting scholars, whatever language the school uses, meeting young people where they are. And then I put these three dots, dot, 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 as they are, period. So, so eliminating all the verbiage and just meeting young people where they are, as they are. So youngster A comes in here, youngster B is here, youngster C is here, youngster D is here. And the objective of the school, the district, the teacher is to meet that youngster right there. So whether we're talking academically, socially, emotionally, whatever it is, meet that youngster right there and let's start to build. And when there's debate around, I guess, the validity of an equity focus, a lot of times it's this somewhat semantic, but also misunderstanding of a debate between well, equity and equality, right? And so this book is based on these 50 questions for educators to reflect on. And this is the very first one is about that discussion, equity versus equality. And you write about how equality is the goal, right? Equity is the strategy. 
And I love the way you write about this because I think it really can, for those who want to really understand and are a little unsure about the difference and why we should be focused on this, I think it puts it into that perspective where in the future, quality was the status quo, then equality would perpetuate the status quo. Equality now would perpetuate this status quo, which is inequity, inequality, right? Can you talk a little more about that distinction that you made, equality as the goal, but not the strategy and vice versa with respect to equity? Because I do think that for those who have been hearing about this and know those two words, and they're not sure what the difference is, I think that really does help people understand. Yeah, you're right. And I, I hear it all the time when I'm on the road speaking to audiences and they think that there's there are people in audiences. I don't want to say all, but there are people in audiences that think that these are synonymous words. That it's just, it's just a matter of which one you're using. But they're very different. Equity, as you just said, is a strategy, period. It is not an intended outcome. It's a strategy to get to the intended outcome. And we can use equality as that out, that intended outcome, just for the sake of discussion here, that I want to pursue equality in terms of outcomes of young people that we're all achieving at high levels, whatever that means. But toward getting there, I can't use equality as the strategy. So I'll say to an audience, for example, particularly when I'm in a lecture mode or doing a keynote address, that what I'm doing with you all as adult learners in this environment, I guess I can pull it off and give you all the same thing at the same time and hope that you all are hearing me. But in a classroom, I could never do that. Right. There's a time for direct instruction. But at some point, you and I have to transition out of that and start to look at the individuality of each youngster. So now we're talking about equity because you got young people in different spaces. You got young people in different places. You got young people with different experiential backgrounds. So mm -hmm. all that has to be considered different realities. All that has to be considered in the equity at the equitable classroom. I've got this youngster or this group of youngsters, this group of youngsters, this individual youngster, whatever it is, but I've got to make, I've got to be able to create a structure within that classroom that I'm able to meet each of them where they are. So that becomes a strategy to get to that intended outcome, intended outcome of equality where all youngsters are achieving at high levels, but we had to take different roads to get there. Right. Yeah. And I think most listeners have probably seen that yeah, the, the uh, that graph. image of the kids of different heights standing on the boxes to see over the fence. And mm -hmm. it demonstrates, OK, if they're all in the same size box, that's equality and one kid can't see over the fence. But the nature of it is that it's it's shifting. Right. So equity is a strategy to make the shift from inequality toward equality. Same thing would happen. That image might be oversimplified, but if the short kid had a growth spurt, he might trade boxes with the other kid, right? It's, right. It, things are continuously moving, but we're recognizing within education that our job is to move it. One of the things that, right on that point about what our job to move things, one of the things that I love the most about what you write about and talk about in all of your work is the importance of the individual educator or the teacher, or the administrator to see themselves as somebody whose presence is adding value to the student. The question you have in this book is, does my presence positively alter the trajectory of my students? And it's along the lines of, 
are my students at an advantage because I'm their teacher? Is my school better because I lead it? All of those things that as individual educators, we wanna be looking at ourselves and saying, if you replaced me with somebody else, would that be worse? Because what I'm doing here is making a difference. And th that's something that I think as well, wherever anybody's coming to this conversation, whatever their prior history or awareness of specific to equity and social justice is, that's an aspiration that mm -hmm. educators would like to see themselves in to say, okay, I am uniquely valuable to my students here. When you position that question in this regard, and particularly talking about positively altering their trajectory, and this, that's what this is all about, is those trajectories. How do you put that to educators and what do you want them to really be thinking of within that? Yeah, you think about young people coming to a school with just very different experiential backgrounds, various different realities, challenges, obstacles, et cetera. So my question to, I would say 100% of the time when a teacher is in front of me, what is it about you? What is it about your practice as a teacher? What is it about your purpose? What is it about your vision that significantly alters the trajectory of children? That is a tough question. Just like are my students at an advantage because I'm their teacher? Those are the kinds of questions that bring silence to a room. Is my school a better school because I lead it? Nobody wants to talk. There's not abundance of hands going up when I ask that question. Everybody's quiet and I'm begging for a response. But I understand why the room is silent. They'll tell me privately later or publicly, they'll tell me why it's quiet because everybody's processing. Everybody's digging deep, looking at themselves within the context of the question. So I'm saying to the teacher to go back to the question about altering the trajectory. One has to look at oneself and say, what is it? that I do with, as it relates to each individual student, and that word each is key versus the word all, right? What is it that I do as it relates to each of the students that I'm able to make that connection toward helping that youngster to have a willingness, and that's another key word, a willingness to soar. When we talk about the difference between, I talk about closing the attitude gap and mm -hmm. inherent in that definition is the will to achieve, the will to soar. So what is it about me, who I am as teacher in that classroom, that in, in terms of my practices with that youngster, that youngster has that willingness to grow, to develop, to evolve. Is there something about me that alters that trajectory? And that's just a question that, that's gotta be asked of that teacher all the time. So now, so then with that, various different indicators that I talk about as it relates to that, whether it be the climate and the culture of the classroom learning environment, whether it be the attitude of me, the teacher, right? Whether it be to what extent equity is a reality in that classroom. Right. And we can look at so many other variables in terms of what would contribute to whether or not the trajectory of that child is, in fact, increasing because I am the teacher in the classroom or the leader in the school. Right. Yeah. And what I particularly love about it is that it centers the personal nature of the work and the necessity of each individual to connect themselves and their own values, vision, objectives personally into the work in 
incremental fashion. And all those things you can see from the inside when you're doing the work that people judging from the periphery can't see, can't tell, don't necessarily know what you're doing and aren't the ones that have to ultimately keep you motivated to keep doing the work. We know about this term that a lot of has to be aware of with respect to their impact on others around like microaggressions. And I don't know what the opposite of that is, but there's these micro moments of positivity, of positive trajectory, where you start to alter things in the right direction when you're doing the right things consistently. And depending on where you are, the, where you're starting from, where your students are, where you're taking them, it may not always look like big success, or you know that you're not at your end goal. You could be doing, for example, a really excellent job transforming the culture within the front office of the Knicks, but they're still the Knicks. So from the outside, it might still look like that team's a mess, but you're doing a great job. And that relates to, this is a personal reflective work. And one of the things you wrote about in this story, and I think is part of, you've been writing books now for a decade and after having been obviously a school leader for a long time. Since 1990. <laughs> well, even more than, but writing <laughs> books and you know, as school leader and thinking about, but it, there's clear that there's consistency across your work, but also an evolution within that. And there's things that you had a different perspective on once you went in, once you were more advanced in your career as administrator, once you went into consulting, once you became an author, that you thought about things that you knew then that you wish you had known earlier. One of them was about sharing your personal story with respect to equity and how it would have made an effect on your students. And can you talk about that a little bit, that feeling of it's regret. Now you have opportunities to obviously share that even more widely, but to say, okay, I, why do you think you didn't realize then that it would have been valuable. What was it about the culture of schools, maybe, and your experience as a student and then becoming an educator that didn't make it seem like the natural thing to do to share about your own life, which was really relevant to your students' lives? Yeah, I think it was more so just my warped thinking that I had to uphold this image that I had created and that students had come to embrace of who I was as principal. When I say created, because who I am, I make this distinction between Baruti Kafele and Principal Kafele. They're in the same body, but they're two very different entities. Principal Kafele is when I'm working. It's not an act. It's just that I'm in a different state of mind when I'm in that Principal Kafele mode. I speak so much better when I'm just as an example, when I'm principal Kefele versus when I'm in Baruti Kefele mode, when I'm very relaxed, not really conscious of how my words are being expressed, but when I'm principal Kefele, then I sound very articulate and intelligent and all that kind of stuff. This thing as a principal, that's what I would morph into as I woke up in the morning, the drive I was there. So that's who they saw. And I said, I don't know that I want them to see before that or after work what I morph back into, because then they may use that as an excuse. When we talk about me having graduated from high school in five years, having attended 
four different schools because mm -hmm. mom is shifting me about trying to find the right fit so that her son could become something, right? So I'm like, is that what I want to put out there? And then they say, you just like us. And now in hindsight, long hindsight, it's like I should have mm -hmm. because they know now because so many of them know me through social, me also through social media. So I've been very public with that. They can listen to videos and hear that. And it's like the connection is there those that reach right. out and want to have any kind of dialogue about it. So in hindsight, if I had it to do all over, I, and trust me when I tell you, I contemplate going back to the ranks of the principalship every day. So if I ever did, which I have no idea, but if I ever did, then I would lead that way. Let the youngsters know who I was before I became Principal Kefele, because I think it matters in terms of knowing the whole me. Right. Yeah, it occurred to me that I wonder how much that concept relates to one of the questions you pose in the book, one of the important points about how do I ensure that no student is invisible in right. my classroom and seeing students for who they are and making them know that you want to see who they are. Because I think a lot of times when we feel invisible, we feel that people don't want to see us, so we're motivated to stay invisible because we think, oh, if I get their attention, it's going to be negative attention. <laughs> if I'm the person, if I'm the backup singer and I all of a sudden come out to the front of the stage and start doing a solo, everybody's thinking, you're not, I'm here to see the other people. Like, this is not, and there's a lot of situations where people feel like that in life. Right. Now you're meant to be over there in the background or you're meant to blend in or as a as anybody. But in this case, as an educator, you're all students and you're not necessarily individuals or there's one way I want to do that. And I can see how for a student sets in to say, look, I'm doing OK here. I'm just going to go along to get along. Nobody's really paying that much attention to me, but that's fine because at least I'm not getting in trouble or a negative attention, and then how that moves into adulthood. And it's relating back to those students and thinking about, okay, yeah, like, do they want to see me? If they see me for who I am, how can they use that against me versus can they use it for them? I think that's, it's all related. And it's how our educators and students relate to one another and understand that our identities and our personalities and our uniqueness is what makes us be able to have relationships. One, one of the things I say, a lot, a lot of teachers will say to me, they'll say, share my story, but the students don't seem to care or connect with it. I hear that all the time. And I particularly hear it when we're talking about two different racial groups. So white teacher, black student, for example. And, but I've also heard it when it's black teacher, black student, when it's a black teacher that's struggling. And here's the thing that I say to them all the time. I say, your story really can't be told until you've earned the right to tell it. If they don't care about you, what you've presented thus far, then they may not really care about your story, about your journey to get to where you are. But if you've earned some credibility with them, if you've been able to forge some type of bond, some type of trust between them and you, now your story will matter because you matter. I talk a lot about standing outside, shaking hands with youngsters before they enter the building as a principal. Now I'm an advocate of, of principals doing the same. And I say to them, 
I say that that handshake followed by my message in the morning, my morning message, they matter only if I matter. If I don't matter, then that handshake means nothing. That morning message means nothing. But if I've earned the right to shake their hand, earned the right to deliver a message in the morning to the extent that we look forward to seeing our principal, we look forward to hearing from our principal. Now, my story has relevance. So I say to folks all the time, make sure that you're not just jumping in there. Now, let me tell my story because they may be able to identify with it. They don't know you yet and they may not even like you. So first start there with just trying to forge that bond. And then you could work your way to the stories. Interestingly, with assemblies, it was, I guess I was a different guy because assemblies, I always told my story, but I didn't start with it. I started with just a message. So as I feel I'm connecting with these students that I don't know, just some gymnasium or auditorium, but I'm giving them this message to get them thinking about how they can get from point A to B. Then when I feel like, okay, we're bonding, then I hit them, bam. But let me tell you about my background. Let me tell you about where I was compared to where I am now. So now it's, wow, because in their mind, I'm somebody now. They know about the books and the, all the other things that come along with that. And it's like, oh, you came from where some of many of us are. And now look at you now. But had I started just, I went to high school for five years. I had a 1.5 GPA, like, I, and we in the same bag as you. So it doesn't Why they hire this guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I love that and the way that, because you, you also share about the, the importance of making sure you're seen as credible to your students. And one of the words that comes to mind for me is patience, right? Patience is a necessity to earn credibility in anything. It's an interpersonal credibility. I need to be patient to take the time to show you that I care about you, that I am here for you, and so on and so forth. And the same is credibility in any other field, credibility as an expert. It doesn't happen the first time you write one article. You need to keep at it and keep showing that you have ideas, that your ideas make sense, that they're helping people. You have to earn credibility. And I think that's, I'm certain that's something that a lot of educators grapple with with respect to this work and saying, okay, I'm in X school where I work. I'm here because I want to be somebody who positively alters the trajectory of my students. I want to be somebody who makes a difference in their lives, but I don't really feel like they're seeing me as credible uh, and I'm struggling to, to totally relate to their circumstances and I don't know what to do next. I'm putting in a good faith effort. I'm doing everything I feel like I can. And yet, I don't know if it's working, right? What would you say to that educator in that circumstance? Part of it, again, is right. You have to keep, have that patience, keep working on it, earning it. But part of it might be more reflection. You're trying hard, but are you, are there certain things you might be overlooking? We're going to have a conversation and I'm going to probe because at this juncture, or the leader or the counselor, whomever it is, may think they've done all they could or may think what it is, they did it the right way. So let's have that conversation and let's figure out what are all the things that you think that you've done and let's exhaust it. And then let's look at it through that particular lens and say, maybe <laughs> there's a whole lot of other things that you could be doing. Maybe there's some things with the information that I gathered 
that you may need to look at how you're doing it and maybe what it is you're doing. You've done all you think you can, but the way you did it was counterproductive. There's looking at every all those variables and just having that one-on-one -on -one coaching session because the relationship between the leadership and the teacher that's what it is. It's coaching. And we call it instructional leadership, but ultimately it's coaching. So it's dissecting all those things that happen in the classroom that the teacher is looking through the lens of the teacher from the vantage point of the teacher. And now here's me coming in, looking at it through a fresh new set of lens. And I may see some things that the teacher just doesn't see. So now we look at it together. And then we strategize. And if we're talking about, again, leadership, teacher relationship, now I'll come into the classroom tomorrow at 10 o'clock and I will look solely at this thing we discussed, rooted in my suggestions, my recommendations. And let's see if that brings about any level of change versus the results you've been getting thus far. So that doesn't just have to be in that relationship between administration, teacher. It could be teacher, teacher, peer to peer. It could be it, it, anything. Right. But just not isolating yourself and trying to figure this thing out by yourself when there's so much human capital in a building, human resources in a building that in so many cases is untapped. I was in a school recently and I won't name the school, but I was in this school and I knew you can notice early on. I knew within the first 10 minutes that I was in the room that staff did not know one another. So after about 10 minutes, I asked the question, y'all know one another? They said, nah, we don't. They knew who they were sitting with, but this is a high school and there were a lot of people in the room. And so now I said, so therefore you all don't tap into one another, do you? Not really. Because they don't know each other. They don't even know each other's names, right? So when I'm in a situation and I'm isolated, I'm by myself and I think I'm doing all I can, chances are you're not doing nearly what you're doing a fraction of what you can because you don't have other people to compare to. You don't have other people to observe. You don't have other people to observe you, to inform your practice, to help you to become that much better because you got other voices that are helping you to grow and evolve within your process. Yeah. One of the challenging things about all of it is balancing, right? That the perseverance, the patience, but also the urgency, right? Because when you're on mission and you have a purpose that you need, you I mean, you want to get where you need to be getting. If your school improvement plan, example, is a five-year plan, five years is a large chunk of time for an individual student. So there's a lot of students that were caught in the middle of, okay, we weren't getting to where we needed to be. And eventually five years later, we had a much better school, but what happened to everybody who came through in the meantime? What effect did we have on them? And it made me think about, I was just looking at one of these today, and this goes around on social media. It's not unique to that, but it's that concept of what would you regret on your deathbed? And the one I saw today, which I was like, this is the wrong framing, is if you were 99 years old on your deathbed, how would you? what would you regret about the way you're spending your time today? And I'm like, if I make it to 99, I'm not going to regret. <laughs> what if I was 59? What if I was 49? What if I was 65, right? All the, what if you felt like you didn't have as much time? I mean, you don't, you never know how much time you have and you need to say, I need to really click into not only knowing what my purpose is, but knowing that I need to accelerate that purpose and I need to make a difference today, tomorrow, and the next day and every day that I have. Talk about your listeners, your readers, you wanted them to be comfortable being uncomfortable. 
and then comfortable being comfortable. This is one of those questions that when you really think about it can certainly put you in that mindset. And I know it's something you've thought about yourself to say, okay, it's the difference between saying, I know what mission I'm on and then knowing when it just clicks into that next gear to say, you know what, I really know what mission I'm on. How does that mentality make that difference when you're really able to confront that uncomfortable thought and that necessity of saying, you know what, I'm everything we've already talked about. And then it goes to the next level (laughs) to say, I know what all my goals are. And I also know that I, I am totally going to be the person that makes this difference. Because I, I think that there's a lot of, of people who could relate to the same thought process or haven't thought about it yet. When you really think about it, clock is ticking. Yeah, I'm a self-reflective practitioner. I'm also self-reflective on the personal side. Everybody that knows me, you go to my website on the homepage, there's a picture of me keynoting with a mirror in my hand. And that's who I am. Being self-reflective and thereby being honest with the self-reflection, with the self-assessment, it's going to force me to be uncomfortable with myself on a daily basis, seven days a week, because I'm going to carve out time every day just to be reflective, not me sitting on the couch here watching a basketball game and daydreaming about or having some passing thought of my work, but some time carved out where it's just about, let me reflect on me now. Let me reflect on what I did in my world right now as a presenter. Let me reflect on that presentation, right? Let me reflect on some things I said. Let me reflect on how I responded to an audience member, all that kind of thing. And some of that can be very uncomfortable in dealing with it, but it's meant to be because that's what's going to make me better. I could easily say that situation, that wasn't my fault and it's done anyway. I'm going to get a check and move on. No, I want to go back to it and reflect upon it and ask myself, how do I grow from this experience of being in this room with these folks for the day? Right. So with the folks I work with, Obviously, if I talk about self-reflection with me, it's an inherent part of what I do as a professional with audiences and when I was a principal and when I was a teacher. So we go deep with that and have those uncomfortable conversations. Everybody doesn't participate because it's that uncomfortable, but at least they hear me. And as so many say to me, particularly through follow-up emails, I didn't talk Principal Cafele because I was just deep into my thoughts about everything you're saying and I just didn't want to be that vulnerable in that space with my colleagues. But that's saying to me, I was with you. I was rocking with you. So that's kind of how I do that. Now, if it's me coaching someone else and we're going to have an uncomfortable conversation, let's say on race, then I'm going to tell them the conversation is necessary, but you don't go in the first day back from summer break and bam, let's hit, let's go head on because you'll probably be counterproductive at that point and lose half your staff, the ones that don't think like you, probably lose them. So instead you work your way, it's very delicate, but ultimately you wanna wanna transform the culture of your staff to the point where we can talk about anything. I may disagree with it, but we can talk about it. And when we leave, we're still allies, we're still friends, we're still a team, although we don't see the world the same way. So it's just the leadership having the audacity to engage staff in the uncomfortable conversation, but knowing how to do it. 
so that one doesn't sabotage themselves and ultimately sabotage their entire building. And that understanding of the world and others' perspectives, whether that's empathy or listening or just reading, right? becoming informed and educated is, is the necessary context for self-discovery because we can't really understand ourselves unless we're understanding how we're relating to the world, right? And what makes us unique from what's happening or others. And I think that self-discovery process is like the leads to both the confidence and the competence in our work, right? It's that thing that, that sort of gets through that imposter syndrome or some of the stuff we've talked about. All right. I don't know if I'm relating right here or am I seen as credible really kind of need to know yourself and what you bring to and what other people are bringing. And then you start to understand, all right, now I know how I fit in here and I know what I can do here and my role. And likewise, same for the students, right? You write about individuality, identity, and voice mm-hmm. being the three three critical things that kind of are through lines in this entire book. How did you narrow it down to those three as the highlighted, those three non-negotiables? Before I ever heard of the word equity, (laughs) rare times I used that word, it was using it in a real estate context of net worth and net value of a home. And that's the only time equity came out of my mouth. It has other meanings, but that's the common usage. When I started really thinking heavily about equity as it became a thing within the education landscape, I said the areas that I focus on most that are like non-negotiable is number one, the individuality of a youngster, not the collective all, it's the individual each. So that's on the one hand, but then my work in terms of just the foundation of who Baruti Kafele is, Principal Kafele, is that whole racial, cultural, ethnic identity. I'm unapologetic there in areas where folks don't want to hear that discussion, like the color blind, culture blind teacher who says, I don't see race, I don't see ethnicity, I don't see culture, I just see the children. I said, well, then if that's what you're implementing in your classroom, then you're not preparing youngster for the world as it is. You're preparing youngster for a world that you wish was the way that you're trying to structure your classroom. But looked at differently, that racial, cultural, ethnic identity is a part of that youngster's overall identity. As I say to my audiences, when we have this discussion, I leave my home or the hotel as a black man. And the reason that I'm very conscious of that is number one, it's what I am, but number two, I have a black man reality. I was on the plane the other day, less than a week ago, and I'm a million miler with United. I get certain perks. I'm a 1K traveler with United, meaning I do over 100,000 miles a year. So on a lot of the flights, the attendant, the flight attendant, will recognize that and offer you certain, you know, beverages and food and all that kind of thing, even while you're in coach. So I'm on this plane and before the plane even taxied from the gate, the flight attendant comes in my seat and I'm sitting next to a gentleman who happened to be white. And he he mispronounces my last name as most do and says, Mr. Caffell. And the guy looks at him And obviously now I know he's talking to me, but he doesn't know which one of us is who. So he keeps calling him Kefel, Kefeli, and the guy's looking at him. And he clearly, the flight attendant saw that this guy was not responding to that. 
So I just sat there and I said, let me watch this thing play out. He says, uh, cause I, you know, I just want to recognize um, that you're a million miler and thank you for your loyalty. So I just sat there and he said, look, that's not my name. I'm so-and-so. And I said to the attendant, I said, I'm Kefele. And the way I received this was this attendant could not wrap his mind around the fact that what's in his manifest about this passenger is me, right? And that's not the first time that's happened. It's happened on many different occasions that if I'm sitting next to a white passenger, it's gotta be this white passenger. It can't be this guy. And in most flights, I probably have more accumulated miles than anybody on the plane because I got about 1.3 million. So that's just part of the reality. So I'm saying to the teacher, don't pretend that this youngster is not black, is not Latino, is not Native American, is not whatever. Because when that youngster goes out into the world beyond the walls of the school, that youngster has to know how to navigate that world. It doesn't mean that racism is going to prevent that youngster from being successful, but it does mean that youngster may have to proceed differently, may have to navigate differently. And as, as that youngster learns how to do that, that youngster can still attain success as a speaker. I couldn't navigate like my white colleagues. I had to learn how to navigate it as myself to get to where they are. So I'm saying that to say with that student cultural identity being just at my core, when I'm thinking, when I'm looking at equity and I'm defining what are my non-negotiables, what are my core principles? And it was that student individuality, that student cultural identity for the reasons I stated and more. And then student voice. In other words, I'm sitting in a classroom. Does my voice matter? Because voice, as I say in the book, is just a verbal expression of who you are. So if I sit here quietly, you see me, but you don't know anything about me. But once I speak, oh, okay, now I see where he is. I see where he stands politically, socially, business, anything. My voice lets the world know, youngster's voice lets the world know who you are. So now in a classroom, am I able to reveal or disclose who I am if my views, my vantage point, my beliefs, my ideas, my opinion run counter to my teacher. When I wrote that, the Equity and Social Justice Education 50, I'm writing this in the middle of the summer of 2020, thinking that schools are going to reopen. So I didn't think they'd have access to the book when schools opened in August and September, but I knew we'd have it out there by the end of the year, end of the school year. So in my mind, I'm saying schools are going to open And youngsters are going to come in with that which happened in the streets of America as the backdrop. And now as they come in, because remember, I'm writing this book knowing that in many of these cities across America, black protesters were not in the majority. You had white young people who were in the majority in a lot of these situations. So now I'm writing that saying they're coming back to school across racial ethnic lines, and they're going to have concerns they want to talk about. They're going to have questions they want to talk about. And is the teacher going to be in position to engage them in that conversation? So I said, because you can't suppress their voice. They got to have voice. They got to be able to express themselves, even if it runs counter to the values of the teacher. We have to be able to have a democratic 
a situation in our classroom where we can articulate our views about whatever it is we want to talk about and not be penalized for it. Those three areas have been solid with me for a while now that the individuality of the student, the cultural identity of the student, racial, cultural, ethnic identity of the student, and the voice of the student are just non-negotiable with me. I listen to some presenters talking equity, and when I don't hear those three in my mind, I'm like, nah, it's missing something. Yeah, yeah. your ability to express your voice is your ability to be seen and heard as real. Mm -hmm. And for your concerns and your experiences and your perspective to be real. And I think that's part of the book. We're all talking about it as one thing, but it's divided into two parts. Equity is the first 60%, and then the rest is more the social justice. Of course, they go right together, but pivoting that social justice piece, again, a topic where some people push back on it, and I think a lot of the pushback comes from trying to present it and the issues and the concerns as not being real. There's this terminology some people claim it proudly, but most often it's used derogatorily of social justice warrior, right? And the connotations, the air quotes around that mm -hmm. are meant to say you're fighting a fight that doesn't need to be fought because the things you're fighting about aren't reality and they don't. And also, it's like that disclaimer. And you know what? Even if it is real, it's a losing battle. You're never going to make a difference. You might as well just give up. I feel like what the critics, what they're trying to get across when they make those criticisms, it's meant to imply naivety. Right. You don't know what you're talking about. And even if you do, you can't make a difference. Go sit over there. That's not the case, right? <laughs> to students, this is very real. This is their life. This is their life now. This is their life in the future. This is their ability to have ambitions and aspirations and to reach their goals. And that comes back to the practicality. And that's part of what this book goes right to is saying we're not only defining these terms, talking about what they mean, why they're important, and giving you a little bit of a summary of the history. There's a lot more reading that you can do to educate yourself, but also it's not some amorphous thing that's just in the cloud and we're just going to sit around and talk about it. But there's like practical ways to bring this into the school and to do it today, even if you're not. A PhD. And so talk about that just a little bit. We're obviously getting toward the end of our conversation here, but I do want to reinforce for listeners that there are tangible things that you can get started on in parallel to continuing to learn more. Yeah. So if I'm understanding your question correctly, you're talking about just in terms of the practical implementation. Yeah, of social justice education. What is yeah. that? And what are some of the things you highlight around starting to really bring that into practice? Yeah, it ties right in the student voice. It's student-centered, and it's looking at the world through the lens of young people, as opposed to the lens of us. See, it's very easy for me to go into a classroom and spew my politics, but it's another thing to connect with young people, not them being conversant in world issues and societal issues and so forth, but meeting them where they are, going back to that definition, and then being able to engage them in discussion about how the world impacts them and how they relate to the world through their lens, wherever it is they are. So to give you an example, we can talk about anything under the sun as it relates to social issues, whether we're talking about in the inner city and the relationship 
that the community has with the police or health care issues, housing issues and social services. I can go on and on, but just the relationship between the community and those entities, but having the conversation is student centered, but then taking content area and infusing it into content areas so that now we take whatever it is that they're learning in a lesson and making it relevant to their lives, as opposed to I've got my life over here and then I've got content over here and I don't see the correlation between the two. So now instead in that science classroom, I can talk about issues of health, for example. And when we say health, I mean, narrowed down to just the food we eat the food that is provided in inner city neighborhoods and whatever those implications may be on the residents of the community in terms of their overall health. We can broach those conversations. In mathematics, everything is math. So we can have various different social justice conversations about math and numbers, right? Mm -hmm. We can talk about the changing complexion of a community. But we can talk about that in a numerical context so that we're talking about social issues, but we're also talking about mathematics at the same time, but bringing about the relevancy of it. So for the people who will hear this, what I'm saying in a nutshell is whatever your content area, we can now look at its relatability to issues of social justice and bridge that gap between the two, bringing them together so that now we've got not only relevance relative to social justice, but we've got relevance just in terms of content. So culturally relevant pedagogy occurring in the classroom where youngsters have opportunity to not only learn, but to see themselves within the learning, see themselves on the page so that, wow, this makes sense to me. This is practical to me. I can use this I can take this with me beyond the three o'clock dismissal bell because it makes that much sense to my life. If there were a hypothetical person out there, this might be a real person or people that you've met, but <laughs> hypothetically speaking, somebody who is currently feeling antagonistic toward this kind of work, but is persuadable, what would you say to them to say, here's what you're maybe not seeing yet? Yeah, you know, that, and that's an easy one for me. Let me give you an answer that's probably just a tad bit longer than you probably were looking for. I wrote this in the book. In 2020, that summer, just the onslaught of non-Black educators who were writing me, seeking advice on what they were seeing. They wanted answers to what they were seeing on their televisions right, or in their towns relative to just the outrage, the demonstrations, the marches, the rallies, even the rebellions that were occurring in cities all over America. So they wanted books and to use their language. Principal Kefele, what books would you recommend for me to understand systemic racism, white supremacy, white privilege? What books do you recommend? And as I've been saying all along, I said, I don't have any to recommend because that's not where I would want to start. In order for you to understand contemporary racism, systemic racism, in order for you to understand that, you have to understand the history that got us here. And chances are very good that you went K-12, then undergrad school, then grad school, and you were not exposed to even the basics of African-American history. Because when you talk about African-American history, then you're talking about Black-white relations. Very difficult 
to talk about African Americans in terms of history in isolation from white, because a lot of the growth, including the joy, is still in reaction to that relationship. So if one was talking about the great migrations from the South to the North and why the North is so heavily populated with Black people, because they're escaping white oppression. So anything you talk about as it relates to Black people in America, you have to talk about that relationship. So here's me saying to them, so therefore, I don't want to recommend a book that, that analyzes racism. I want to talk about books. I want you to read books that take you back to first Black life in West Africa, which is where most African-Americans came from, and then the Middle Passage leading to enslavement in America. I want you to understand that and then the history from 1619 up to the present. I know that that, that number 1619, that year is a trigger for people, but it has to be understood that that represents a beginning in terms of Black people in America and everything that evolved or emanated out of that over the next 400 years. To kind of close that, when the folks started reading the books I was recommending before The Mayflower by Lerone Bennett Jr., From Slavery to Freedom by John Hope Franklin, The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson, and Introduction to African Civilizations to Take Them Beyond 1619 by John Jackson, those four in particular, when they started reading them, once they read at least one book, they would post them on Twitter and say, Principal Kefele, I'm angry, right? Because you exposed me to material that I've never been exposed to before. And now my conclusion is I've been lying to my students for 25 years, for 30 years, for 15 years, whatever it was. I've been lying because I did not know this history. So it's not that they didn't know Black history. They didn't know American history, right? They knew the portions of American history that were fed to them through curriculum, but they didn't know the fullness because there was a very large group of people that were left out of curriculum with the exception of like a Dr. King, a Harriet Tubman, a Frederick Douglass, but there was so much more to know. So hence, that's what I would say to a listener. Go back and read one of those four books. If you missed it, just rewind this and go back about two minutes and you'll hear it again and get those books and then feel free to reach out to me. Right. And we can list those in the show notes as well. Yeah. Do you have a final final note to the school leaders in particular who about making this work resilient, understanding that they have these goals and they're they may consider them non-negotiables, but you have an entire faculty of folks who are going to have varying levels of experience, expertise, competence and there's going to be successes and there's going to be times that don't go as well as you want it to be about just establishing that resilience in the culture so that it doesn't go away so that you keep making progress toward these goals. It's being consistent, but being strategic at the same time. It's realizing that you have human beings on your staff who, when they leave, they're not all going to the same place. They're going in many different directions. Some of them are going to urban environments in terms of where they reside. Some of them going maybe rural. Some of them are going to suburban and their experiential backgrounds are varied. So you have to consider that as the leader that you've got a diversity of thought in that staff meeting and you cannot approach them as if they're all the same because they're not. Now we're talking equity with your staff and you got to get to know them. You got to get to know who they are. And then you approach this very delicately because that racial component to equity is real and it can't be ignored. You got to engage them in that conversation, but you got to take your time. As a leader, 
you've also got to be conversant. And if it turns out that you're lacking in terms of what you know, then you've got some reading to do. I have a book list, a blog page, com, And you just got to scroll way, way back because I got a lot of posts on there. But just scroll back and look for my suggested reading. And this is in terms of African-American students, for teachers of African-American students. And a lot of people read, they, a lot of people get that list and they utilize a lot of the books that there's about 150 books broken down by category. And uh, you got to read so that you can evolve in your own thinking and just have better understanding of what it is you're grappling. Perfect. With. If our listeners aren't already following your work, where should they go? What should they check out? Yeah, go to principalcafele.com, K-A-F-E-L-E, which I'm sure they'll see it written. Twitter, at Principal Cafele, Facebook, at Principal Cafele. Instagram, which I don't really, I ain't really into too heavy, but Principal Cafele and on LinkedIn, Principal Cafele. And then I got this other Facebook page called Virtual AP Leadership Academy. And that's coincides with my Saturday Virtual AP Leadership Academy every Saturday morning at 1055 Eastern Time. And uh, I've got a Facebook page that corresponds with it where I write commentaries on Sundays that follow up the Saturday broadcast. Check all that out. Those are means of reaching me. Perfect. We'll put a bunch of those links and resources in the show notes. Listeners certainly find a link below to the Equity and Social Justice Education 50 and where you can purchase that. And do subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews like this one or visit thepodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Principal Fele, thanks for being on The Authority. Oh, yeah. Thank you. This has been The Authority Podcast, hosted by Ross Romano. Edited by Gage Sanderson. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.